Book the First, Part Five of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Book the First, Part Five. The next morning, Somerset was again at the castle. He passed some interval on the walls before encountering Mr. Stancy, whom at last he observed going towards a pony carriage that waited near the door. A smile gained strength upon her face at his approach, and she was the first to speak. "'I'm sorry Miss Power has not returned,' she said, and accounted for that lady's absence by her distress at the event of two evenings earlier. "'But I have driven over to my father's, Sir William de Stancy's house, this morning,' she went on, "'and on mentioning your name to him I found he knew it quite well. "'You will, will you not, forgive my ignorance in having no better knowledge of the elder Mr. Somerset's works "'than a dim sense of his fame as a painter? "'But I was going to say that my father would much like to include you in his personal acquaintance, "'and wishes me to ask you if you will give him the pleasure of lunching with him to-day. "'My cousin John, whom you once knew, was a great favourite of his, "'and used to speak of you sometimes. "'It would be so kind if you can come.' My father is an old man, out of society, and he would be glad to hear the news of town. Somerset said he was glad to find himself among friends where he had only expected strangers, and promised to come that day if she would tell him the way. That she could easily do. The short way was across that glade he saw there, then over the stile into the wood, following the path that it came out upon the turnpike road. He would then be almost close to the house. The distance was about two miles and a half. But if he thought it too far for a walk, she would drive on to the town where she had been going when he came, and, instead of returning straight to her father's, would come back and pick him up. It was not at all necessary, he thought. He was a walker and could find the path. At this moment a servant came to tell Mr. Stancy that the telegraph was calling her. "'Ah, it is lucky that I was not gone again,' she exclaimed. "'John seldom reads it right if I'm away.' It now seemed quite in the ordinary course that, as a friend of her father's, he should accompany her to the instrument. So up they went together, and immediately on reaching it she applied her ear to the instrument and began to gather the message. Somerset fancied himself like a person overlooking another's letter, and moved aside. "'It is no secret,' she said, smiling. "'Paula to Charlotte,' it begins. "'That's very pretty.' "'Oh, and it is about you.' murmured Mr. Stancy. Me? The architect blushed a little. She made no answer, and the machine went on with its story. There was something curious in watching this utterance about himself, under his very nose, in language unintelligible to him. He conjectured whether it were inquiry, praise, or blame, with a sense that it might reasonably be the latter, as a result of his surreptitious look into that blue bedroom, possibly observed and reported by some servant of the house. Direct that every facility be given to Mr. Somerset to visit any part of the castle he may wish to see. On my return, I shall be glad to welcome him as the acquaintance of your relatives. I have two of his father's pictures. Dear me, the plot thickens, he said, as Mr. Stancy announced the words. How could she know about me? I sent a message to her this morning when I saw you crossing the park on your way here telling her that Mr. Somerset, son of the academician, was making sketches of the castle, and that my father knew something of you. That's her answer. Where are the pictures by my father that she has purchased? Oh, not here, at least not unpacked. Mr. Stancy then left him to proceed on her journey to Markton, 
so the nearest little town was called, informing him that she would be at her father's house to receive him at two o'clock. Just about one, he closed his sketchbook and set out in the direction she had indicated. At the entrance to the wood, a man was at work pulling down a rotten gate that bore on its battered lock the initials W. de S., and erecting a new one whose ironmongery exhibited the letters P. P. The warmth of the summer noon did not inconveniently penetrate the dense masses of foliage which now began to overhang the path, except in spots where a ruthless timber felling had taken place in previous years for the purpose of sale. It was that particular half-hour of the day in which the birds of the forest prefer walking to flying, and, there being no wind, the hopping of the smallest songster over the dead leaves reached his ear from behind the undergrowth. The track had originally been a well-kept winding drive, but a deep carpet of moss and leaves overlaid it now, though the general outline still remained to show that its curves had been set out with as much care as those of a lawn walk, and the gradient made easier for carriages where the natural slopes were great. Felled trunks occasionally lay across it, and alongside were the hollow and fungus boles of trees sawn down in long past years. After a walk of three-quarters of an hour, he came to another gate, where the letters P. P. again supplanted the historical W. de S. Climbing over this, he found himself on a highway which presently dipped down towards the town of Markton, a place he had never yet seen. It appeared in the distance as a quiet little borough of a few thousand inhabitants, and, without the town boundary on the side he was approaching, stood half a dozen genteel and modern houses, of the detached kind usually found in such suburbs. On inquiry, Sir William de Stancy's residence was indicated as one of these. It was almost new, of streaked brick, having a central door, and a small bay window on each side to light the two front parlours. A little lawn spread its green surface in front, divided from the road by iron railings, the low line of shrubs immediately within them being coated with padded dust from the highway. On the neat piers of the neat entrance gate were chiselled the words Myrtle Villa. Genuine roadside respectability sat smiling on every brick of the eligible dwelling. Perhaps that which impressed Somerset more than the mushroom modernism of Sir William de Stancy's house was the air of healthful cheerfulness which pervaded it. He was shown in by a neat maidservant in black gown and white apron, a canary singing a welcome from a cage in the shadow of the window, the voices of crowing cocks coming over the chimneys from somewhere behind, and the sun and the air wriggling the house everywhere. A dwelling of those well-known and popular dimensions which allow the proceedings in the kitchen to be distinctly heard in the parlours, it was so planned that a raking view might be obtained through it from the front door to the end of the back garden. The drawing and furniture was comfortable, in the walnut and green rep style of some years ago. Somerset had expected to find his friends living in an old house with remnants of their own antique furniture, and he hardly knew whether he ought to meet them with a smile or a gaze of condolence. His doubt was terminated, however, by the cheerful and tripping entry of Mr. Stancy, who had returned from her drive to Markton, and in a few more moments Sir William came in from the garden. He was an old man of tall and spare build, with a considerable stoop, his glasses dangling against his waistcoat buttons, and the front corners of his coat-tails hanging lower than the hinder parts, 
so that they swayed right and left as he walked. He nervously apologised to his visitor for having kept him waiting. "'I'm so glad to see you,' he said, with a mild benevolence of tone, as he retained Somerset's hand for a moment or two. "'Partly for your father's sake, whom I met more than once in my younger days, before he became so well known, and also because I learned that you were a friend of my poor nephew, John Ravensbury.' He looked over his shoulder to see if his daughter were within hearing, and, with the impulse of the solitary to make her confidence, continued in a low tone, "'She, poor girl, was to have married John. His death was a sad blow to her and to all of us. Pray take a seat, Mr. Somerset.' The reverses of fortune which had brought Sir William de Stancy to this comfortable cottage awakened in Somerset a warmer emotion than curiosity, and he sat down with a heart as responsive to each speech uttered as if it had seriously concerned himself, while his host gave some words of information to his daughter on the trifling events that had marked the morning just past, such as that the cow got out of the paddock into Miss Powers's field, that the smith who had promised to come and look at the kitchen range had not arrived, that two wasps' nests had been discovered in the garden bank, and that Nick Jones's baby had fallen downstairs. Sir William had large cavernous arches to his eye sockets, reminding the beholder of the vaults in the castle he once had owned. His hands were long and almost fleshless, each knuckle showing like a bamboo joint from beneath his coat sleeves, which were small at the elbow and large at the wrist. All the colour had gone from his beard and locks, except in the case of a few isolated hairs of the former, which retained dashes of the original shade at sudden points in their length, revealing that all had once been raven black. But to study a man to his face for long is a species of ill nature which requires a colder temperament, or at least an older heart, than the architect's was at that time. Incurious unobservance is the true attitude of cordiality, and Somerset blamed himself for having fallen in into an act of inspection even briefly. He would wait for his host's conversation, which would doubtless be of the essence of historical romance. The favourable bank returns have made the money market much easier today, as I learn, said Sir William. Oh, have they? said Somerset. Yes, I suppose they have. And something is meant by this unusual quietness in foreign stocks since the late remarkable fluctuations, insisted the old man. Is the current of speculation quite arrested, or is it but a temporary lull? Somerset said he was afraid he could not give an opinion, and entered very lamely into the subject. But Sir William seemed to find sufficient interest in his own thoughts to do away with the necessity of acquiring fresh impressions from other people's replies, for often after putting a question he looked on the floor as if the subject were at an end. Lunch was now ready, and when they were in the dining-room, Mr. Stancy, to introduce a topic of more general interest, asked Somerset if he had noticed the myrtle on the lawn. Somerset had noticed it, and thought he had never seen such a full-blown one in the open air before. His eyes were, however, resting at the moment on the only objects at all out of the common that the dining-room contained. One was a singular glass case over the fireplace, within which were some large medieval door-keys, black with rust and age, and the others were two full-length oil portraits in the costume of the end of the last century, so out of all proportion to the size of the room they occupied that they almost reached to the floor. 
Those originally belonged to the castle yonder, said Mr. Stancy, or Charlotte, as her father called her, noticing Somerset's glance at the keys. They used to unlock the principal entrance doors, which were knocked to pieces in the civil wars. New doors were placed afterwards, but the old keys were never given up, and have been preserved by us ever since. They are quite useless, mere lumber, particularly to me, said Sir William. And those huge paintings were a present from Paula, she continued. They are portraits of my great-grandfather and mother. Paula would give all the old family port pictures back to me if we had room for them, but they would fill the house to the ceilings. Sir William was impatient of the subject. What is the utility of such accumulations? he asked. Their originals are but clay now, mere forgotten dust, not worthy a moment's inquiry or reflection at this distance of time. Nothing can retain the spirit, and why should we preserve the shadow of the form? None of it has been very full this year, sir, I have been told. It has, said Somerset, and he asked if they had been up that season. It was plain that the matter with which Sir William de Stancy least cared to occupy himself before visitors was the history of his own family, in which he was followed with more simplicity by his daughter Charlotte. No, said the baronet, one might be led to think there is a fatality which prevents it. We make arrangements to go to town almost every year, to meet some old friend who combines the rare conditions of being in London with being mindful of me. But he has always died or gone elsewhere before the event has taken place. But with a disposition to be happy, it is neither this place nor the other that can render us the reverse. In short, each man's happiness depends upon himself and his ability for doing with little. He turned more particularly to Somerset, and added with an impressive smile, I hope you cultivate the art of doing with little. Somerset said that he certainly did cultivate that art, partly because he was obliged to. Ah, you don't mean to the extent that I mean. The world has not yet learned the riches of frugality, says, I think, Cicero somewhere, and nobody can testify to the truth of that remark better than I. If a man knows how to spend less than his income, however small that may be, why, he has the philosopher's stone. And Sir William looked in Somerset's face with frugality written in every pore of his own, as much as if to say, and here you see one who has been a living instance of those principles from his youth up. Somerset soon found that whatever turn the conversation took, Sir William invariably reverted to this topic of frugality. When luncheon was over, he asked his visitor to walk with him into the garden, and no sooner were they alone than he continued, Well, Mr Somerset, you are down here sketching architecture for professional purposes. Nothing could be better. You are a young man, and your art is one in which there are innumerable chances. I had begun to think they were rather few, said Somerset. No, they are numerous enough. The difficulty is to find out where they lie. It is better to know where your luck lies than where your talent lies. That's an old man's opinion. I remember it, said Somerset. And now give me some account of your new clubs, new hotels, and new men. What I was going to add on the subject of finding out where your luck lies is that nobody is so unfortunate as to not have a lucky star in some direction or other. Perhaps yours is at the Antipodes. If so, go there. What I say is, discover your lucky star. I am looking for it. 
you may be able to do two things one well the other but indifferently and yet you may have more luck in the latter then stick to that one and never mind what you can do best your star lies there there i am not quite at one with you sir william you should be not that i mean to say that luck lies in any one place long or at any one person's door fortune likes new faces and your wisdom lies in bringing your acquisitions into safety while her favour lasts to do that you must make friends in her time of smiles make friends with people wherever you find them my daughter has unconsciously followed that maxim she struck up a warm friendship with our neighbour miss power of the castle now diametrically different from her in associations traditions ideas religion she comes of a violent dissenting family among other things but i say to charlotte what i say to you win affection and regard wherever you can and accommodate yourself to the times i put nothing in the way of their intimacy and wisely so for by this so many pleasant hours are added to the sum total vouchsafed to humanity it was quite late in the afternoon when somerset took his leave mr stancy did not return to the castle that night and he walked through the wood as he had come feeling that he had been talking with a man of simple nature who flattered his own understanding by devising machiavellian theories of after the event to account for any spontaneous action of himself or his daughter which might otherwise seem eccentric or irregular before somerset reached the inn he was overtaken by a slight shower and on entering the house he walked into the general room where there was a fire and stood with one foot on the fender the landlord was talking to some guest who sat behind a screen and probably because somerset had been seen passing the window and was known to be sketching at the castle the conversation turned on sir william de stancy i've often noticed observed the landlord the folks who've come to grief and quite failed have the rules how to succeed in life more at their fingers ends than folks who have succeeded i assure you that sir william so full as he is of wise maxims never acted upon a wise maxim in his life until he had lost everything and it didn't matter whether he was wise or no you know what he was in his young days of course no i don't said the invisible stranger oh i thought everybody knew poor sir william's history he was the star as i may say of good company forty years ago i remember him in the height of his jinx as he used to see him when i was a very little boy and think how great and wonderful he was i can seem to see now the exact style of his clothes white hat white trousers white silk neckerchief and his jonic face as white as his clothes with keeping late hours there was nothing black about him but his hair and his eyes he wore no beard at that time and they were black as sloughs the like of his coming on the race course was never seen there afore nor since he drove his equipage himself and it was always hauled by four beautiful white horses and two outriders rode in harness bridles there was a groom behind him and another at the rubbing post all in livery as glorious as new jerusalem what establishment he kept up at that time i combined him sir with thirty race horses in training at once seventeen coach horses twelve hunters as his box to the side of london four charges at budmouth and ever so many hacks and he lost all by his racing speculations the stranger observed and somerset fancied that the voice had in it something more than the languid carelessness of a casual sojourner partly by that partly in other ways 
He spent a mint of money in a wild project of founding a watering place, and sunk thousands in a useless silver mine. So it was no wonder that the castle named after him fell into other hands. The way it was done was curious. Mr. Wilkins, who was the first owner after it went from Sir William, actually sat down as a guest at his table and got up as the owner. He took off, at a round sum, everything saleable, furniture, plate, pictures, even the milk and butter in the dairy. That's how the pictures and furniture come to be in the castle still. Well, meat and rubbish, some of it, and hardly worth moving. And off went the baronets to Myrtle Villa. Oh, no, he went away for many years. Tis quite lately, since his illness, that he came to that little place, in sight of the stone walls that were the pride of his forefathers. From what I hear, he has not the manner of a broken-hearted man. Not at all. Since that illness, he's been happy, as you see him. No pride, quite calm and mild. A new moon, quite childish. Tis that makes him able to live there. Before he was so ill he couldn't bear a sight of the place, but since then he is happy nowhere else, and never leaves the parish further than to drive once a week to Markton. His head won't stand society nowadays, and he lives quite lonely, as you see, only seeing his daughter or his son whenever he comes home, which is not often. They say that if his brain hadn't softened a little, he would have died. Twas that saved his life. What's this I hear about his daughter? Is she really a hard companion to the new owner? Now that's a curious thing again, these two girls being so fond of one another. One of them a dissenter and all that, and t'other a distancy. Oh no, not hard exactly, but she mostly lives with Miss Power, and goes about with her, and I dare say Miss Power makes it worth her while. One can't move a step without the other following. Oh, judging by ordinary folks, you think twould be a cat-and-dog friendship, rather. But tis not. Tis not. They'd be more like lovers than maiden-maid. Miss Power is looked up to by little Mr. Stancy as if she were a god almighty, and Miss Power lets her love her to her heart's content. But whether Miss Power loves her back again, I can't say, for she's as deep as the North Star. The landlord here left the stranger to go to some other part of the house, and Somerset drew near to the glass partition to gain a glimpse of a man whose interest in the neighbourhood seemed to have arisen so simultaneously with his own. But the inner room was empty. The man had apparently departed by another door. End of Book the First Part 5